Hi, this is Nick Craig, and this is another Leading from Purpose podcast. Today, my special guest and dear friend for many years is Sanjeev Mita. Sanjeev and I have known each other for many years, and at this point in the journey, he is chairman and managing director of Unilever Hindustat, which is a very huge consumer goods company, very big part of Unilever in India. But he also is president of Southeast Asia. So he's got a couple of hats, to say the least. And the last thing I'd like to say is he also was gracious enough to do the forward to my book, Leading from Purpose, for the book that was published in India. So I want to welcome Sanjeev to this podcast. So thank you, Sanjeev. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to share thoughts and ideas with you. That's great. And so I'd love you to tell people what your purpose is. You know, Nick, my purpose has been there at a subliminal level for many years. Exactly. But about 10, 11 years back, you were the person who made me articulate my purpose. It's a very simple purpose. It is, uh, I believe in that every human being has infinite capacity. Mm. And my purpose is to make heroes out of ordinary people. Mm. And the transformation inspires me. I love the simplicity and the beauty of what you just said. And so if we look at the journey of your life, and I think you are right, that it's not like we created this purpose as much as it had always been there. I just wonder if there's any stories from your journey in life that for you are sort of key of helping sort of you to see how that really is the essence of who you are. Yeah, you you know, there have been many factors which have influenced me. Mm. And uh, if I go back to the background of my parents, my dad and my mom, they were from uh, what is now called as Pakistan. Okay. And when uh, India got divided, mm. they were immigrants who moved from West Punjab to India. Mm. While my mother's family, anticipating the partition, they were business family. They had shifted all the wealth in advance and they were able to resettle pretty well. But my father's family, they lost everything. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, when they migrated, then, you know, it was one of the biggest migration of people in history. Millions of people moving from what is now India into Pakistan and what is now Pakistan into India. It was a very brutal partition. Hmm. And my father, uh, he was a very young man then, very tough times, not only on the journey to India, but settling down in a new place. And my father had lost his father a few years before partition. So they had to study and they had to work uh, for their living while being students. Mm. And uh, my father had also seen the gory part of partition, the killings, etc., at very close quarters. He never talked about it. He never talked about his hardship. We came to know the story from our grandmother. Oh, interesting. Our grandmother was an amazing woman. About uh, two decades back, she 
died at a ripe old age, which was close to three digits. And uh, she was a matriculate mm. at that age, a very wise woman who had seen immense hardship, but whose knowledge about world affairs, about culture, about history was very profound. And uh, childhood, I remember, whenever she used to come and stay with us, that she used to do a few months a year, she would spend time with her children in different parts of the country. Bedtime used to be her telling us stories of history, yeah, the Mughal history, the Sikh history, uh, the British history, stories of partition, what happened, what transpired. And uh, those were the things that had a big influence on me. We were a very typical Indian middle-class family. My father was a central banker. And uh, it was not about the riches. It was about education. It was about values. It was about sports. It's not that we had foreign holidays. We never traveled abroad till I started working. Yeah, but it was a very happy childhood. And the best time of the day, Nick, was when our father would come and at dinner time, it was a ritual. All of us would have dinner together. We would wait for our father to come in. And dinner was to be, dinner used to be together. And our father used to regale us with stories about the economy, the bank, the politics, what's happening in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so that had, again, a huge influence on me. And my father, very high principles in life, high integrity, high principles. And yeah, he always used to say that the biggest thing that you can do is give a source of livelihood to a person. Hmm. So even during this pandemic, Nick, one of my endeavors has been that no one in my extended, not just in my company, but in the extended value chain, no one loses a job. That is so deeply ingrained in me. Interesting. So in some ways, this purpose of yours has been always part of your ethos. In some senses, that little kid sitting at that dining room table, it was like it was the meal that you were eating. Yeah. So if we, if we switch gears and we say, okay, how have you as been a leader? So you became chairman of this beautiful organization a couple of years ago, yes? Yeah, my first chairmanship, Nick, was way back, 18 years back in early 2002, when I became chairman of Unilever Bangladesh. And I'll give you a bit of background. And uh, we were in sunny Dubai. My wife, Mona, was a corporate banker working for HSBC. And uh, we just had our twins a few years back. Okay. And uh, Dubai was a nice life, a very, very sanitized place. Okay. Nice life. And we were enjoying. Both had good jobs. The little babies were growing up. We had good nannies for them. Nice life. And I remember I had an American chairman called Tom Stevens. And uh, he called me one day and said, uh, Sanjeev, there is a job of a commercial director in Bangladesh. And that was, that was the first time a board position in an operating company was offered to me. Okay. And he said, it's a tough place and the business is in shambles. 
Yeah, I don't think you should go there. We'll find another good job for you. But think over it. I've been asked to tell propose this. Okay. Okay. And I went home and talked to Mona. That was the first work level four. You know, in our hierarchy, yeah, work level hierarchy. four. It's a fairly is, high level yeah. role. With yeah. It. Then that was coming my way. And my wife said, uh, don't just turn it down. Let's go and take a look at Bangladesh. So it was end of 98, uh, around uh, September of 98, when we took the Emirates flight and flew down to Dhaka. And when we were landing, it was the worst flood in the history of Bangladesh. Mm. And there was water everywhere except the strip. Did you land The Dhaka airport strip. We landed there, and then we took a rickety propeller aircraft to Chittagong. Chittagong was the port city where we were headquartered. And it was pouring, raining. And uh, next day, I went to office. By that time, I had the results of the business and what it was. Uh, The business was in shambles. It was bleeding. Uh, The growth was negative. The morale was low. We spent two days over there, met different people. There was a chairman, an Englishman called John Noel. And he had set up a dinner at his place and he'd invited uh, all who mattered in the city to come and meet us. He did his job. We saw the factory, came back. On the way back, we were thinking, what do I do? It was very challenging. And my wonderful wife, Mona, said, where in your life will you get a chance to turn around a business? Mm. (laughs) That's great. And uh, I told her, moving to Chittagong may mean that you might have to give up your job. Mm. And she said, I'm willing to take, do the sacrifice so that you can pursue your dreams. Wow. So people were surprised when I picked up this job. Mm. Yeah. One is because it was a tough place. Bringing up kids in Chittagong is very different to bringing up kids, two young daughters, twins in Dubai. And Mona would have had to give up a job, which to me was uh, something which still haunts me. Hmm. Interesting. But uh, we said, what's life without picking up challenges? Hmm. And we were also very conscious of the risk that if we were not able to help turn around the business, then uh, my job might go down the Bay of Bengal. And uh, we had a business group president of, he was running what I do today, yep. the region. And his name was Jeff Fraser, a tall, lanky Australian. And Jeff invited me to London to give me a debrief on Bangladesh. I'd signed on the dotted lines by then, so he called me to brief. And he said, uh, Sandeep, a business in Bangladesh is in shambles, and if we are not able to turn it around, we have also been evaluating the options of exiting from Bangladesh. So I thought to myself, hey, man, I wish you had told me before I signed on the dotted line. (laughs) So here we were, me and my wife and a little girl taking a risk Mm. and going all the way to Bangladesh, to Chittagong and starting a new life. 
And the first two and a half years were bloody tough. It's a different story at all together, Nick, of uh, what the problems in the business were and how difficult it was sure. and turning it around. But uh, we did a majestic turnaround. And uh, the same Jeff Fraser, it was in mid of 2001, about two and a half years after I'd been there, we had annual meeting in uh, Mumbai. And we used to call it those days OBJ or OB Joyful, you know, when the senior team would come together to yep. celebrate the year that has gone by. Okay. You know, that was a Unilever ritual. And he called me, took me to the bar and asked me, Sandy, would you like to take over the gym? And uh, I had my, been grooming myself to be a general manager, Nick. And I, you know, was obviously excited and I thought that, uh, okay, as soon as I leave, Jeff, I'll go and call up Mona and tell her. But uh, Bangladesh, two, three years was tough and we were looking forward to a next job. And a few weeks later, we had the deputy CFO of Unilever visiting us, an Englishman. And he said, uh, Sanjeev, we would like you to come to London and uh, join the corporate finance team. So the options for me were go to London, become the chairman, not go to London, and maybe Mona would have rejoined HSBC, remain in Bangladesh, and pursue my dream, become the chairman. And at the same time, there was a gentleman called Mr. Rashid Rashid, who used to look after North Africa, Middle East, who called me up one day and said, we want you to come back and take over as the commercial director of Unilever Arabia. And he said, that's what we have been training you for. Yeah. So we debated and, uh, you know, there was the appeal of London. Hmm. There was an appeal of coming back to Arabia at a senior position, uh, taking over as the chairman. And then again, my wife, Mona, said, you have been grooming to become a chairman hmm. and you take up this job. Hmm. And uh, we will stay back in Bangladesh for another few years. And it went up to London because there were different people and uh, there were different compulsions. And I remember there was uh, people like Jeff Fraser and all who batted very strongly for me. And they said, we should let Sanjeev decide what he wants to do. And I think that is the greatness of Unilever, right? They let you live the way you want it to be. They don't superimpose things on you. And I'll also tell you why the chairman's job I was so excited about and why I was grooming myself for that job. And uh, then we decided to take the plunge. And uh, I, early 2002, I took over as the chairman of Bangladesh. And then we immediately moved to Dhaka, the corporate headquarters. It made sense, business sense, to move the headquarters to Dhaka. Dhaka was a much better city than Chittagong. And uh, we had international schools and civil girls could go over yeah. there. And then Mona got a consulting job with the World Bank. And uh, that was my first job as a chairman. And uh, five years later, when I left Bangladesh, five years as a chairman, mm-hmm. yeah, so nearly seven and a half years in Bangladesh, uh, Unilever Bangladesh had become a uh, jewel in the crown of Unilever. Hmm. Yeah, is uh, consistent high performance, 
And this was the same team, Nick, where the business was in shambles. And this was the same team, same set of people, not people from outer space, who turned it around and it became the most admired company in the country. Its return on capital employed, its dividend payout became the highest in Unilever. It was the only company which was given the platinum award for superior performance over years. Mm. And, you know, the team, uh, I was so happy to see my team become real heroes. So you really were living your purpose. And when you made the decision, since you had those really beautiful choices, do you think your purpose helped you make that decision? Absolutely. Because, you know, Nick, I thought the biggest impact I can have on a business is that of a general manager, hmm. chairman of the business. Yeah. And wife seems to know your purpose extremely well. Yeah, but you know, as a chairman of the company, you can not only have a huge impact on the people who work with you, hmm. but you can have a massive impact on the country, on the society. And let me give you an example which I'm very proud of. Bangladesh was a poor country, and uh, we had started making decent money. And we thought it's very important that our engagement with the society goes up so that we can make a difference to the community. Now, Bangladesh has several islands, which in the local language is called as Char, C-H-A-R. And, uh, you know, the mighty Indian rivers, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, it goes down the Bay of Bengal. And uh, many of these islands are swamped and you can't even reach them. Uh, very difficult to reach them during monsoons. Healthcare is very fragile over there. Mm -hmm. And I remember in 2004, we had a great year. And we said we need to do something about uh, where we can have an indelible impact on the society. And what we did is we purchased an oil tanker, old oil tanker, and converted it into a hospital ship. Hmm. And 16 years later, Life Boy Friendship Hospital still plies going from island to island, taking health care to people, many of whom had not seen a doctor in their life. That's yeah. Cool. And uh, now Bangladesh is again part of my region, so I visit there every year. And uh, over the years, over a million people have been treated by Life Boy Friendship Hospital. There are operation theaters over there. There is an ICU over there. And what we used to do is there are many doctors in uh, Netherlands and UK and Europe who want to give a part of the life, part of the year for a worthy cause. And we used to fly them down, take them in a seaplane to the hospital where they would perform complicated surgeries. <laughs> and it's a game making a difference to the people. Yeah. So I think what the general manager's job over the last 18 years has allowed me to do is not only to grow the business, because growth gives me energy. Let me be very clear about it. But growth allows me to do things which are even more meaningful, which is uh, helping the community, which is uh, making a difference to the environment. And uh, very importantly, instilling self-belief in people 
and uh, in making them heroes. And if we look at the time we now live in, in this period that uh, is quite challenging, do you feel that your purpose has been showing up in these last six months of this incredibly unprecedented moment? You know, Nick, uh, in my career, I have seen several crises. Before I joined Unilever, I used to work for an American company called Union Carbide. And I was a rookie, my first job. And I had been sent to Danbury, Connecticut, where the headquarters of Union Carbide was. And I was working over there when uh, the Bhopal gas tragedy happened. And a few weeks later, I was paradropped to Bhopal. And uh, for a year and a half, I worked on the crisis team. Hmm. What is called as perhaps the world's still biggest industrial disaster. When I was chairman of Unilever in North Africa, Middle East, before coming to India, yeah, that's when I met you, Nick. That's right. That's when the Arab Spring happened. Mm. And you would recall that from the fruit vendor in Tunisia is the entire region went up in flames. And uh, my business or my region had 20 countries from Oman in the east to Morocco in the west. So Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, all these countries were up in flame. And from there, then uh, one was, of course, uh, came to India. And in India, you know, over the years, one has battled many crises. There was demonetization, if you remember, a few years back, where all the legal tender was suddenly abolished. And uh, that was a very challenging period. It was introduction of one unified tax, which was another very challenging period. But uh, very clearly, this crisis is of a different magnitude yeah. because it's a health crisis, it is an economic crisis, it's a societal crisis, and all that has come together. And uh, we run a big business in India, in the region, and uh, it has uh, many dimensions yeah, as one of the largest companies in the country, yeah, you have to play a big role in the society. You have to play a big role as a partner to the government, giving them inputs and uh, being the partner, helping revive the economy. And uh, you have to take care of your people, your, the extended ecosystem. And in a country like India, Nick, there are over 200,000 people whose food on the dining table is brought courtesy Hindustan Unilever. Yeah, exclusively. Their livelihood depends on Hindustan. So you have a big sense of responsibility towards all of them. Yeah. And uh, we manufacture essential products. Until a vaccine is developed, the humble bar of soap is mm. human being's best friend. Yeah. Yeah, or a sanitizer. And uh, while the country was in a severe lockdown, and India had to go through a much severe lockdown, perhaps the harshest lockdown amongst any big country. And the reasons were very simple that way back in March, uh, when the lockdown commenced, the healthcare facilities were very fragile in the country. 
So the government needed time and space to build up the health infrastructure. But it had huge consequences on the economy. It took a massive toll. Millions of people have lost their jobs. Mm. The GDP in the June quarter, the September quarter numbers are yet to come out. The June quarter numbers were minus 24%, yeah, which is massive. So yeah, the challenges are very different magnitude. But these are also, I believe, in many ways, has been a test of character for millions around the world. Now, navigating the crisis, you have to be comfortable with ambiguity and chaos, <laughs> recognizing that there is no crisis playbook to guide me. I might have been part of the Bhopal tragedy crisis team. I might have led Unilever very successfully during the Arab Spring mm -hmm. with amazing results. But uh, though my boss, Alan Joe, felt that, you know, all my life I've been trained for this moment. But uh, this was a crisis where uh, navigating through the turbulence meant adjusting, improvising, redirecting as the situation changed and new information emerged. Also understanding that uh, one would make mistakes along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, learning as we go, pivoting quickly, not being deterred by failures. These are also moments to demonstrate, I believe, huge amount of empathy, compassion, transparency, and uh, humility. Uh, the job of a leader, Nick, in these kind of circumstances is to provide, I believe, what I call as brutal optimism. Hmm. Brutal because one doesn't want to not paint the reality, the challenges ahead. But these are moments where everyone craves for leadership. People look for hope. So we also have the job to create a strategy and rustle up the resources to overcome the crisis, yeah, because the job is uh, not only to manage the immediate crisis and uh, to keep putting out the fires raging around us, but also plan for the longer term mm. because uh, we will overcome this crisis. Yes. There's no question about that, Nick. And I have a very strong belief in human ingenuity and uh, the capacity to change. And I believe that when humankind put their mind and heart on any issue, then they will make a difference and we will overcome the crisis. So we have to be ready for the world uh, which will be post the vaccine. And so we have to, while painting the reality, lift the mood, the spirits of the people, channelize the energies towards better performance, and very importantly, rekindle the spirit so that people live their purpose. You know, some of my proudest moments during the crisis have been when our factory workers, when everything, the whole nation was shut and only essential products were allowed to be run and everyone was scared, stepping out of their homes, uh, factory. We have scores of factories around the country. Now, people would 
still go to the factory. And our workers would tell us, we come to the factory to save the nation. Hmm. That's purpose. That's purpose, yeah. A humble salesman coming out of his home and going from grocer to grocer, selling the soaps and sanitizers, soups and uh, immunity boosters, yeah. is again doing it because the nation needs it. That's again living the purpose. Yeah, mm-hmm. They could have sat at home, yeah, but they said, no, we have to do it. It's not just a job, because if we don't go and sell, how will thousands of families living in the neighborhood will get their soaps to protect themselves, the sanitizers to protect themselves. So these are amazing stories. Yeah. So during the crisis, you asked a question about this crisis. So it has been in many dimensions, a very humbling experience. It's been uh, in many dimensions and it's, I'm so proud of my team, amazing team, my top team, my rank and file, the thousands of people who work in our ecosystem. And very importantly, you know, in Unilever, Nick, we always say, we have certain three fundamental beliefs, uh, brands with purpose grow, companies with purpose last, and people with purpose thrive. Lifeboy as a brand, when the crisis broke, it advertised, go and wash your hands with any brand of soap. Mm. Yeah, no other brand did. And uh, a chairperson of a competing company called me up and said, Sanjeev, even I felt like buying Lifeboy. Mm. Wow. Yeah. For us as a company, we don't have to think twice when it comes to the safety of our people. We don't look at money when it comes to safety of our people. And here I'm talking about not just safety of people who are employed by HUL, but across our ecosystem. So we got insurance for our sales, a distributor salesman, not our salesman, distributor salesman, just so that the families could feel a bit more comfortable when their husbands or wives would step out of their homes during this pandemic to sell our products. We were amongst the first company which set aside 100 rupees to spend on the community. And we did it in a very structured way, I think. Those were the days when the testing was a big constraint because uh, we did not have many testing kits. So we flew in 75,000 testing kits. There was shortage of ventilators and we flew in ventilators from outside. There were uh, shortages of uh, isolation centers. We worked with hospitals to take over hotels and converted them into isolation centers. There were many workers uh, where there was reverse migration, people going back to millions of people going back to their rural home because uh, cities had shut down. We looked after them, giving them food kits, giving them uh, essential kits, you know, PPEs for frontline workers. And we had just taken over the business of GSK Consumer Health, a big merger which we did the 1st of April of this year. And our R&D scientists told us that uh, we can have Horlicks with added uh, zinc, which would boost immunity. So many hundred thousand packs we first distributed to the healthcare workers in different cities of the country. 
And the entire idea was that they need the added zinc more than anyone else during these times. So, you know, for a company like Unilever and Hindustan Unilever, living the purpose comes very naturally. And uh, that's the reason I feel so privileged and proud that I'm working for an organization like Unilever. Well, I just want to thank you for sharing all these stories today. I'm just deeply grateful that I get to, in some ways, be on this journey with you. Being the hero of the common man right now makes more different, more is more important than it ever has been. Really. Oh, absolutely! You know, it was uh, Mahatma Gandhi who rightly said that the rich must live simply so that the poor can simply live. Well, with that, I bring our time together to a formal close. I want to thank all of you for listening. Sanjeev, so thank you so much for spending this time with us all today and look forward to sharing with you the continued adventures of leading from purpose. Thank you all. Thank you, Nick. It's been fabulous. It's always a joy and a pleasure speaking to you.